Um, a very good afternoon to those people who are on the Asian side looking in and a very good morning to those who are on the UK European side. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome all attendees to this webinar event, which is a presentation of the Intellectual Property Rights Enforcement Manual for Indonesia. Uh, this is Britcham's 23rd webinar since April the 7th, and on this occasion, it's a great pleasure to be partnering for a second time in the IP context uh, with our member, Rouse, with the UK government and the financial sector and intellectual property program, which is a prosperity fund program. We all know that uh, developing countries have particular challenges around intellectual property, usually in terms of protection, policy and enforcement. Uh, this program seeks to strengthen the overall business environment through a better understanding of IP issues, particularly the very complex area of enforcement. Um, the bios of our speakers have been circulated in, in advance, so I, I'm not going to go through the expertise um, that you will have access to over the next 45-50 minutes or so. Um, instead, just simply remind you that um, in addition to those of you who have uh, already fielded questions, and there are a number, um, as Asti mentioned, there is a Q&A box. Please do use it as you go through. We'll do our very, very best to pull questions off. We apologize in advance if we can't take them all, and we, we may need to cluster a few as well. Um, but it gives me great pleasure to, uh, to really uh, take my role as just helping this particular webinar along. And as I mentioned, I'm pleased to leave the meaty elements that will be del delivered to you by our very capable panel of experts. And with that in mind, uh, I would first of all like to welcome Jeannie Fersen, uh, who is Head of Economics and Digital at the British Embassy in Jakarta. Ginny. Thank you, Chris. Um... And Slamat Siang, Slamat Pagi, good afternoon, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am at the moment in the UK, uh, hoping to come back to Jakarta soon. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to join us virtually today to launch our new intellectual, intellectual property enforcement manual. Uh, we hope this will be a useful tool uh, for business people and potential investors trying to navigate the wonderful world of IP in a market where regulatory clarity and consistency are not always the watchwords. This enforcement, IP enforcement manual, has been developed by our delivery partners, Rouse, in collaboration with stakeholders from business and government as part of a program of work to promote legal certainty for intellectual property owners in Indonesia. Our conversations with Indonesian policymakers regularly highlight the important role protection of intellectual property plays in attracting foreign investment and boosting economic growth. It is a catalyst for innovation and creativity, and never has this been more vital than in the current difficult economic circumstances. If the saying is true that necessity breeds invention, then it must also be true that intellectual property theft threatens invention. And intellectual property theft that goes unpunished deters investment. I believe the work we are doing here together with the Indonesian government 
will boost understanding of the challenges around IP, provide technical assistance and build capacity in implementation and enforcement. The IP Enforcement Manual is part of a programme of work funded by the UK Overseas Development Assistance. We hope members of Bitcham, other businesses large and small and potential investors can make use of this IP Enforcement Manual which is now publicly available on the Bitcham, Bitcham website. I understand. I hope that's correct, Chris. Um, this webinar provides you with a golden opportunity to ask questions of the IP experts, and we have several of them on the panel today. Uh, apologies in advance, I will not be able to stay for the whole of the webinar, but I wish you fruitful discussions, and I hope, hope you make very good use of this new resource. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Ginny. Um, an excellent introduction, an excellent scene setter, really appreciated. And um, in the interest of keeping things moving, so we do have that time for the Q&A and discussion later, I'd like to quickly move, uh, move on and move forward to Desmond Tan. Uh, Desmond is a regional ad advisor for Southeast Asia at the Intellectual Property Office and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Desmond. All right, so thank you, Chris. So, Salamat Pagi, everybody. It's good to see you. So, greetings from Singapore. So, um, I'm from the Intellectual Property Office of the UK, or IPO for short. So, I'm part of the IPO's global network, Atashe, covering which spans from China, North and South America, India, and Geneva. And of course, myself and team will cover IP for Southeast Asia. So, very, very briefly, what we do is that firstly, it's the G2G angle where we work with the regional governments to build a conducive IP environment for businesses, one that is aligned with international best practices and standards. So I think a good example would be our uh, UK Prosperity Fund program, which very shortly um, Jeannie has covered, and also Nihai and Nick will cover in detail again. Another aspect that we will do will be on the government to business angle, where we provide IP support for businesses who are coming to, the, to Southeast Asia or are already in Southeast Asia. And our support actually spans across the entire IP life cycle from the creation of IP and invention itself, to protection, how to protect your IP, to monetizing your IP, and lastly, I think to the most important of all, I think it's on enforcement. So in brief, that's really what we do. Um, so I guess that's a very quick overview of the Akashi Network and IPO. Thank you very much, uh, Desmond. Also uh, very brief, uh, I think this is gonna give us some great time to get stuck into some of these questions later. Um, I was a little bit sidelined by the uh, screen view that I had, and uh, actually um, I put Desmond out there in front of ne Neha Mehta, who should have been uh, the second speaker. Um, Neha is team leader at Financial Services and Intellectual Property Program of the Prosperity Fund Southeast Asia. Neha. Thank you, Chris. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this webinar today. It's a privilege to be presenting to all of you. My name is Neha Mehta. I'm the team lead for the Financial Services and Intellectual Property Program, in short, FSIP. FSIP is the part of ASEAN Economic Reform Program and is funded by the UK FCO Prosperity Fund. It's a three-year program where we are catering to Southeast Asian markets and trying to bring conducive business environments so that we help towards inclusive and sustainable growth of these six markets where we operate. And we are trying to also achieve some of the UN sustainable goals, such as innovation, gender diversity, equality, reducing uh, poverty. 
IP sometimes come, comes across as a very technical and a geeky subject. So I'm glad that we have put together our sources to bring together the regulation, practical tips, and also how we can navigate in the complex Indonesian markets. It's oftentimes said that IP is the new oil for the 21st century. If that is true, then we should all be making sure that our business strategy is aligned to our IP goals. I'm uh, thankful to Brit Cham and the team from Rouse, especially Nick and Anushka for putting together this manual because this manual not only talks about the business side and also the legal rights and enforcement of the IP rights, but it also talks about the gender equality and social inclusion. And the topic is very close to my heart because this is where we bring in the gender aspect. Um, IP in itself is very gender neutral. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers, it has oftentimes been seen that the patent resistant from the women's side is actually very small. So we are discussing this in the manual. I hope you find some time to read this over the weekend because it will help you give the right tips to launch your business in Indonesia and at the same time, start a discussion for gender equality. Back to you, Chris. Thank you very much, Neha. And I hope everybody was listening. You have your homework and it's due back on Monday morning. Um, thank you, Neha. Um, uh, next up is uh, uh, representing Rouse's uh, Nick Redfern. Nick is the deputy CEO of Rouse. Nick. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you, everybody, and to all attendees for joining in as well. Um, my name is Nick Redfern. I'm based in Indonesia. I'm an IP consultant at the uh, global IP firm Rouse, and I've worked in intellectual property in Asia for the last 20 something years. Uh, Rouse is the delivery partner for the FSIP project in Southeast Asia, and I oversee the IP part of the project. So we've drafted this IP enforcement manual, which has been published through Britcham Indonesia for a number of reasons. Intellectual property, or IP, which consists of brands, copyright, patents, designs, and other forms of intellectual property, is of growing importance for global businesses. Investors need to deploy their IP assets in countries that they invest in, and for this they need clear and consistent rules to protect them. But those very same IP rules in countries also help local companies create higher value knowledge-based businesses. It's no coincidence that countries with weak IP systems often have weak uh, IP creation and weak export industries. Indonesia is in the process of transitioning from a commodity-based economy to a knowledge one. There are some great examples of IP-rich sectors like the booming e-commerce sector. So e-commerce companies own their own intellectual property, but the platforms that they run also operate intellectual property rules and policies to govern the merchants that are trading on them. Our goal is to help British and other international companies either in the market or considering entering into the market understand IP. Investors always need information. Some companies have IP specialists inside them and you're going to hear from one in a while. Um, yet other companies might not have internal specialists and only a business person responsible for a market. In some cases, IP is managed back at headquarters, sometimes very far away, and so the in-region expertise might be lower. So one of our goals is to try to help demystify this problem and to provide more information locally. The manual can't provide legal advice on a specific situation, but it's intended to be informational to provide guidance to understand what Neha said is a complex set of rules. Part of this is boosting transparency. 
the WTO TRIPS agreement uh, back in uh, the 1990s sought to harmonize the world's IP laws, but how they work in practice is, is often very different from the actual laws. And it also differs across countries and legal systems. Even within Southeast Asia, within the 10 country ASEAN bloc, you've got multiple different legal systems. And the way intellectual property operates in Singapore can be different from say the Philippines or Indonesia. So everyone will be forgiven in their weekend homework for finding some parts of the manual and some parts of IP tech protection quite hard to follow. What we've tried to describe is the area that most people understand as counterfeiting and piracy. What that means is identical or nearly identical copies of trademarked goods or services or copyright protected articles and content. Now, most counterfeit goods come into Southeast Asia from China. Most copyright fakes are traded online. So the manual does cover some traditional online enforcement, uh, sorry, traditional offline enforcement options uh, for those categories of fakes, but also online solutions for the growing electronic trade in both copyrighted and trademarked goods. Now, much of the manual does contain some technical law because IP experts need to know and understand those rules. But we've tried to make it a bit more accessible to businesses, and we've done that in two ways. The first is to give an introduction, which hopefully helps a lay person work their way through how the manual works. Then throughout it, whilst it goes through the different criminal, civil, uh, customs, administrative and other remedies, in the, in, in, on the basis of the rules, there are also commentary sections and practical tips. So this is where a non-expert could go too quickly to find a bit more guidance on how things work in practice. Or in the case of an IP expert who understands how the rules work and what they mean, they might be able to use that to see which options might work for their company and which ones might not. So for example, in Indonesia, there's a set of rules to allow companies to stop counterfeit goods being imported from China or from elsewhere. But in practice, the system is closed to most of the world's IP holders due to a narrow regulatory system. Only Indonesian companies or subsidiaries of foreign businesses can actually use the IP recordal system with customs. Many businesses, in fact, most businesses trade through a distributor. So although the rules say that something exists, most of those businesses are excluded. So this is what we want to try and achieve with the manual, to provide practical answers rather than just pure legal theory. The FSIP program um, it has involved a number of different projects. Um, this particular one focuses on these IP enforcement manuals. We've already published one in Indonesia, but there are also publications in Vietnam with the uh, BBGV, British Business Group uh, Vietnam, and also Britcham Philippines. And we're also hoping um, other countries will then follow suite in, in, in months to come. Beyond that, the FSIP program has a number of other projects which we encourage businesses to get involved in. These range in the enforcement space from uh, building a better custom system. I already touched upon some of the challenges with that. Another project involves trying to build Indonesia's IP coordination function. There is of course an IP office, but what you will see if you read the manual is IP enforcement falls outside its purview, as it does in many countries actually. And the customs authority, the courts, the criminal authorities, they all come under different ministries. So we're hoping that Indonesia will start building this enforcement coordination function. Another example of a project that we've been working on is an enforcement data collection. This is working with the ASEAN 
and Secretariat. And we're hoping that over the course of the next, uh, probably the next year or so, that ASEAN will then use the uh, template we've designed to start collecting, probably for the first time at a regional level, um, across all the 10 ASEAN countries. So that's just a sort of flavor of what we're doing with this project. Um, as I say, we're encouraging businesses to get involved. We already have a number of companies supporting different elements of the program, uh, different projects that they're particularly interested in. Um, and a key part of the British government's ODA work is to make sure that there are secondary benefits to international companies trading in Indonesia, as well as the primary benefits to the, the country itself and its own businesses. So thanks very much for, for listening to me and I hope you find the manual useful and thank you all for for the uh, manual, uh, for the, sorry, for the webinar. It's our pleasure, Nick, and thank you very much indeed. Um, completing our panel and representing a private sector company for which IP is so very, very important is Pankaj Monga, who's senior counsel, anti-counterfeiting Asia-Pacific for also Britchair member GlaxoSmithKline. Chris, uh, Chris, thanks so much. I, I believe you can hear me. Great. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much for including me. I'm, I'm the senior counsel for uh, GSK and counterfeiting Asia Pacific, supporting uh, GSK and uh, efforts across the enterprise, including uh, pharmaceutical consumer and vaccine business. I'm based out of uh, uh, Singapore. Uh, today, I'll share with you very briefly uh, the landscape of counterfeits in Southeast Asia. Uh, as, as Nick mentioned, that uh, most of the counterfeits in this part of the world come from China. Uh, I would also share uh, towards the end of my presentation uh, a case study as well. Uh, China, as you all know, is a dominant uh, manufacturing force uh, in the global economy uh, with an advanced uh, export infrastructure. Uh, various data sources show that the majority of the world's counterfeit goods are exported from China. Uh, this undermines the competitiveness of the companies uh, in the markets around the world. Uh, Southeast Asia is a region uh, of growing economic importance, uh, both globally and uh, to British companies. Uh, yet many British companies report that many of the goods sold there are counterfeits. Uh, according to a survey done uh, for the British companies, uh, an estimated scale of counterfeiting in Southeast Asia is in the range of uh, 5 to 40 percent of the total market is based on uh, internal estimates and the market surveys. Uh, the majority of the counterfeits in Southeast Asia are imported from China, uh, with the exception of lubricants and apparel, uh, which have more uh, Southeast Asia local production. Uh, next slide, please. Now this is uh, this slide presents the known uh, counterfeit uh, routes uh, from China to Vietnam. Uh, this is an example uh, which is there on the screen. Uh, but I've got uh, details of how product moves uh, from from China to Southeast Asian countries. Uh, it moves uh, uh, by overland via China's Guangxi and Yunnan province borders into Myanmar and uh, Vietnam. Uh, for onward transportation to uh, Thailand. And as you know, corruption and smuggling along this border is, is rife. Uh, some goods pass by road through border posts, but many are carried into Vietnam and perhaps Myanmar through private areas in smaller parties, sometimes larger, but it must break into uh, small boxes. Uh, many cross 
through backcountry tracks and carried by passengers or across the bus. Next is especially from China's eastern seaboard ports like Ningbo and Shanghai, and the southern ports of Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Taman. Uh, the major ports uh, in Southeast Asia country which are receiving uh, the which are receiving the uh, the the goods uh, essentially uh, are the major ones in Manila and Saigon in and some ports in Malaysia and Indonesia as well. Next slide, please. So GlaxoSmithKline is a, as you all know, is a uh, is a research-based healthcare company, and uh, uh, we have uh, an active program going on for uh, treating globally as well as in Asia Pacific because we too have been impacted by companies, uh, and we have uh, some success with our programs in Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, China, India, and Indonesia. Next slide, please. So these are a few of our brands uh, from medicines, vaccine, and healthcare business. Uh, next slide, please. So this is uh, this is something uh, which we encountered. This is a case study wherein uh, we were informed about and there were incidents uh, uh, which were reported to us. Uh, some due to the fact that the number of online sellers in Indonesia has doubled uh, every year over the last years. Uh, in 2017, there were a total of about 4.5 million active sellers uh, online selling pharmaceutical products. Uh, so we found our devices being sold uh, on a platform called Shopee. Uh, so we, we work with BPOM and uh, with, uh, with Shopee platform uh, to take down uh, close to 800 uh, listings of the sellers. And this was a great success with working along with the uh, BFARM of Indonesia. So uh, I, would, I, would, uh, I would like to end my presentation here and uh, open up uh, and then back to you, Chris. Thank you very much, uh, Pangaj. Um, I think um, we did have intermittent sound challenges with you. Um, so I'd just like to um, apologize to uh, our attendees if you were uh, if from time to time there was a little bit of a wobble on the voice but the slides were very very clear um, and that was an excellent presentation. Um, I, I wonder if um, first of all I, I could just ask um, Nick Redfern um, on you, you use the expression practical issues Nick um, and you're somebody on the ground in Indonesia um, and we have a, a, a question that embraces what I would consider to be some pretty basic uh, market access um, questions. Um, it's from a gentleman called Ken C. Um, but he refers to an international company that's entering the market. Um, what, what are in fact the, base, the, the best ways to protect IP for the best outcomes? And if we could deal with that first, and then talk about if they do get trapped in infringement, um, what can they expect in terms of a time frame for remedy? And actually, how often is a remedy positive in terms of the, uh, the company that's, um, that's the victim? Yes, thanks, uh, Chris, and thanks, Ken, for that question. Um, uh, 
I think that's a really good way of approaching it, Chris. Uh, the preparatory steps will determine the success to a large degree of any problems you have later. So um, quite usually an IP advisor will tell you long before you enter a market, you should um, register all of your intellectual property. Now it's not quite as simple as that. There are certain time frames when things have to be registered and sometimes things get overlooked. But particularly uh, some straightforward things like trademarks. Um, Indonesia is known, and this is another practical issue, uh, for a sort of problem of what we call trademark uh, piracy, which is unauthorized registration of other people's trademarks. I don't know why Indonesia particularly is prone to it. A number of countries are. I suspect it's because the country is extremely alive to consumer brands. Consumers here are very aware of international brands. Historically, Indonesia, unlike a number of other countries in the region, wasn't closed. So people had access to all the knowledge of, of global brands. So preventing somebody else registering your trademark is a key first step. Now, people sometimes don't get to think about that until they are starting their investment. But of course, the internet has changed uh, global trade and the awareness of brands is greater now than it's ever been. So you have to, there are systems that allow you to file a trademark and then make sure you file in other countries in the succeeding periods afterwards. So early filing of trademarks particularly, um, other areas might be more difficult to register because there are certain time limits, particularly patents and uh, designs when you must file certain things. So getting your portfolio of IP in order long before you enter the market is the best strategy. Sometimes it can't be done long before you enter the market. So obviously the fallback is before you enter the market. But problems come when people are trying to already start selling goods and they find they've got problems because somebody else has registered something or they're not allowed to do it or they're running into conflicts. So that's the starting point. And usually companies would have an internal IP council, someone like Pankaj, um, or there might be somebody at head office who's responsible for it if they're not in the region, um, or they'll have an outside intellectual property firm, someone like us, or possibly someone at head office who's been dealing with all of this. So business people often might need to liaise with the, that team to make sure that all the protections are in place. Sometimes within very large corporations, the disconnect can exist between the commercial people who are trying to set up business on the ground and the headquarters team whose job is to manage and uh, own all the intellectual property. So getting that right ready first is very important. So turning on to um, what happens if you do run into problems. So it can vary depending on whether you're an investor or not present in the market, but let's just assume you're in the market and, you, and you're present and you're uh, trading here and you run into a conflict with somebody, whether it's counterfeit goods or a, a, a legal dispute. So typically, and this is how the manual sets it out, there are three types of remedy uh, in most countries. There are criminal remedies for um, counterfeiting and piracy. Now, unfortunately, Indonesia's criminal law system is not uh, the best in the world. Um, there are some challenges with it. It's not an IP problem. Um, this is a problem that relates to the historic uh, structure of the legal system and particularly the 30-year Suharto dictatorship, which essentially uh, didn't improve the criminal system for decades. Uh, there are then civil court systems. Um, Funnily enough, the civil court system for intellectual property is a bright spot. This does work rather well. 
and there are lots of court cases regularly on intellectual property. Um, I was just looking just now at one involving my my beloved Chelsea Football Club. So uh, they successfully recovered one of their trademarks recently. And there are numerous cases like that that, uh, that you see. Those take only three or four months to get through the civil courts. There can be a bit more preparation time. So we'd normally say six months, but um, it's quite possible to bring and use the Indonesian civil court system for IP cases. Then you have what we call administrative remedies. And I really look at customs primarily for that. And as I mentioned, there's a theoretical system working, but it's not quite working in practice yet. And the FSIP program has got a, a project specifically working with uh, uh, the Indonesian government to try and develop that. So we're hoping that, that that might lead to a rule change in the future, which would open it up to more international companies. I would also say self-help is really important. So companies can do a lot with a, with a law firm, with legal letters, with uh, trying to solve problems through the online enforcement systems. Um, many Indonesian uh, professional IP IP professionals often do a lot of this kind of work. Rather than relying on public uh, courts like you would perhaps in other countries, you have a lawyer go and negotiate a solution. And there's an awful lot of negotiation of IP disputes in Indonesia. And that sits very well uh, for those that are familiar with the country with the sort of very Javanese practices at solving things by sitting down and talking about them. So even some quite uh, protracted and horrible legal disputes get solved by a settlement at some point. So I hope that gives you a flavour of the two aspects of protection and then uh, enforcement. Yes, Nick, thanks very much indeed. I, I know Desmond uh, would like to add a, a few comments to your very, very comprehensive answer. Desmond. Thank you, Chris. And yes, thank you, Nick, for the very comprehensive answer of covering how to protect IP and what happens when there's an infringement. So I think Nick has one a very good point about self-help as well. So I think what we want to cover also for Ken's question about how to protect your IP for the best outcomes is that I think usually there are also two parts. The first part, which is in the pre-market phase, which means before you even go into the market, I think it's really important to identify what are your IP assets, what is really important to your business, and how does it affect your business revenue or profits or operations if you lose this IP. So, and another thing then, after you've identified your IP assets, is to look into how you can then protect them. It is true, IP can be quite expensive, but then again, not all IP can be really expensive. So if you have already identified what are your IP assets, you can then look into maybe you can protect it via a trademark or you can protect them via trade secrets. Uh, and that's for very crucial IP that you may want to protect them under patents. And even then, each of these IP rights, there are different filing strategies you can put in place. So, and, and for IPO, um, we also were very pro the self-help approach. We have a number of online tools and guidance that you can, you can just find on the IPO website. For example, we have the IP health checks, IP audits, where businesses, particularly the smaller ones, you can actually go into, click in and understand, find out more about IP. We also have like collaborative um, templates or for partnerships, etc. You can also use this as reference points. So I think uh, there are many stages. I think knowing before you go is very important and you can go for online help. And then thereafter, in the market, when you're in the market, you can also seek for guidance from the law firms Nick and Ralph, they do a very excellent job. So I think, I hope this gives a spectrum of how companies can protect IP for the best outcomes. Thanks. Um, thank you for the addition, Desmond. Um, I think the self-help thing is very, very important. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that might be just a little bit frightened by the extent of the challenge, um, either financially or other resources. Um, so to know that there are places that they can go to to get a much better sense 
uh, of their position is, is very important indeed. And, and of course, if I may add that uh, within chambers of commerce, for example, there are different types of um, IP groups where there's a lot of best practice sharing and information around. And it's, it's very useful to get involved in those communities as well to sense what it's really like on the ground, a bit of street wisdom um, uh, that perhaps can't always be channeled into websites. Um, uh, uh, Pankaj, you, your, your role um, is an Asia-Pacific role. You mentioned um, China as an example where there's, there, there are many, many challenges. Um, I, I'd just like to ask you, I, I know we're talking here about enforcement for Indonesia, um, but your experience around the region, um, wh where does Indonesia sit in terms of its development in the IP context? Perhaps I can come back to Pankaji. Obviously, he had one or two challenges with uh, with bandwidth when he was doing his presentation, and that may be the case right now. Um, uh, in in which case, I'd just like to ask Neha. I mean, we know that this um, this piece of work is has been or is being rolled out in the Philippines and Vietnam as well as Indonesia. Um, are, are the findings very very different in the guidance? Yeah, Chris, uh, you're breaking up. I mean, I I can't hear most of the and I can't hear. Um, could, could I ask our speakers just to put a thumbs up if you can hear me? Okay, thanks. Um, Pankaj, I'm moving on now. I'm going to ask uh, Neha um, just at the moment. Neha, on the other pieces of work, uh, were there any significant differences that were observed between Philippines, Vietnam, um, and Indonesia? Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, as Nick mentioned, it's treating in four countries with the intellectual property work stream. And for us, it's very important to make sure that we work in tandem, because if you talk about the ASEAN region in comparison to EU, every country in ASEAN has a different background, politically, culturally, regulatory. Uh, so it becomes very hard for a company to actually have options uh, without navigating the challenges of IT. And, uh, to answer your question specifically and what we're doing at the FSEP program, we are constantly trying to see if we can work with the ASEAN Secretariat to bring some sort of alignment and streamline the process for IP enforcement and the regulation because we understand that IP registration in itself is not enough. We need to protect the IP, we need to enforce the IP. And uh, we have been working with the ASEAN Economic Council, ASEAN Working Group for the Intellectual Property. And uh, if you talk about multiple uh, agencies that are looking after the IP functions, I think to bring them together to get things done has become a very slow process because it's very bureaucratic. And uh, going on to how we're doing things in uh, Indonesia and the home front, I would say that we have been uh, able to achieve good success because as Nick and his team have been working to improve the system to tackle the counterfeit goods that are coming into the Indonesian market, especially through China route, as Pankaj was also saying. And we have been trying to support the e-commerce platforms because Indonesia has the highest piracy level in the, in the world. So it's important that we at the FSIP level try to address some of these issues. We're also working with the ASEAN IP Action Plan 2016-2025 and we're providing the IP enforcement data for Indonesia to them. We're also working towards the national IP enforcement coordination function in Indonesia and also trying to strengthen the custom IP system for foreign companies. Because if you talk about our, our relationship with the UK, uh, Indonesia and UK are good trade buddies and it's important that we learn from the best practices 
in the UK because UK is ranked as number five in the Global Innovation Index. And on the contrast, Indonesia is at 85th position. So there is definitely a large scope for us to learn from the UK in terms of navigating these murky waters. Uh, UK is also in the forefront of science and research. So it becomes even more important that while we are addressing different issues in these four markets, which are widely different, uh, we bring together the right business environment so that we can see local and the foreign firms, including the UK firms, thrive in this market. Um, th thank you very much, um, Neha. I wonder if I can bring uh, Desmond in here. Um, there was mention by Pankaj and, and Neha in your answer as well, the commerce space is, is a very important space. And of course, we, we know right now that there's huge acceleration um, in digit, digitization of all kinds because of what's going on with the pandemic. Um, do, do you get a sense that um, this acceleration is going to be an incentive for Indonesia to move faster, uh, to, to be an in, a, a good international citizen? Uh, or perhaps has this digitization come just a little bit too soon? So thank you, Chris. It's an excellent question. In fact, I think there's a lot of potential for Indonesia in this space. I think a few years, I think like two years ago, so Tamase and Google actually once did a research into the e-commerce space in Southeast Asia, and they estimated that this entire market is worth over $25 billion, with Indonesia among the top three. So, and in Indonesia, I think that because they have a very vibrant young population that's very internet savvy, I think within um, looking into shopping online, e-commerce space, they have Gojek, go grab everything. So I do think that having this space in place is an, uh, it's a very good incentive for the government to review their IP and their copyright regime to see how it can support. I think as Nick and also Niha has mentioned, and also uh, Jinichi mentioned before, a strong IP foundation is a good magnet for FDIs and, and attractive for businesses and investments to come in. So what we are also trying to do from the UK and from our FSIP program is to work together with these countries like Indonesia, for example, so in, to review their IP laws and copyright laws. So for example, we are also looking at Vietnam to review their copyright laws, to see what are the, uh, the legislations that they can put in place that so that align with international best practices I've mentioned. The first advantage of this is that it eases the friction for all international businesses that's coming into the region because if these are common standards and practices that we are all familiar with, it makes it very easy for all of us to then operate and invest in the region. So in re I think that's actually a very good uh, impetus for Indonesia to go ahead. Um, thank, thank you very much, uh, Desmond. There is a, a very specific question from a gentleman called Eddie about uh, an idea he had in a company. And I think it might be best to direct, if you're willing, Nick, to go offline and engage that particular uh, person and question um, later. Um, we, we don't have too long, but of course, the, the word education has been used a number of times. We've got to educate at all levels, educate the courts, educate Indonesian people, educate companies. Um, but what about education at the university level? We've had a couple of questions around that. Um, <clears throat> Is, is there enough access to courses and programs um, that are likely to set up a young Indonesian um, in a career that perhaps with a, a legal basis or commercial or council basis? Are there enough courses uh, available in the Indonesian system? I'm wondering, Nick, whether you have a, you have a sense of this being based in Indonesia. Um, 
So there are two different categories of uh, IP professional in Indonesia. There are lawyers who are qualified to go to the qualified at the bar to go to court and do legal work and then there are IP consultants who are qualified in a different way to advise about the protection of intellectual property. That's quite similar actually to the UK, um, at least how the UK began. There's a separate patent and trademark profession in the UK which is separate from solicitors as we call them, lawyers. So it's not so very different. Um, the IP consulting profession really took off after about, I think around 2005. Um, and there are now, I wouldn't know how many exactly, but definitely over 500, I think, qualified. So the number of IP professionals is growing fast. Um, general lawyers sometimes have the expertise, but sometimes they don't. And to be honest, it's increasingly a specialist area like many areas of other areas of law and so you know I would always advocate seeing a, an IP a professional IP lawyer who knows and is qualified in and practices in the area and there are as I say a quite a large number qualified now in the country so a growing profession exists and hopefully it will double in size over the next uh, 10 or 15 years okay and um, and Nick just uh, while you're on just a very very quick one I think it was about three years ago that uh, uh, you engaged with Britcham and we were doing various training for the Indonesian IP office. Um, are, you are you happy with the speed of progress uh, in relation to IP and the Indonesian authorities? Um, there are some areas that have moved quickly. So, uh, as I say, the civil court system does run relatively well. Um, there are definitely challenges in the criminal side. Um, the custom side, if we can get this uh, amendment to the regulation, could open up a whole new area of work for, for all the international companies that work here in trying to prevent the trade in uh, counterfeit goods. So these things tend to go in fits and starts. What might seem like a small regulatory change in the customs regulations could lead to a significant uh, amount of work and a significant impact. I would say that the e-commerce side um, has been quite interesting and this is no criticism of Indonesia but laws tend to lag behind business and the e-commerce way e-commerce works is a, a platform uh, like Shopee or Bukalapak has a set of rules and regulations for traders that are using it because of the influx of venture capital that boosted that whole industry a number of quite sophisticated international managers came into those companies and built those up to be quite modern in their approach. We're still behind that on the legislation and the Indonesian government is working, and that's another part of the FSIP project, on trying to update all the rules, almost to catch up with where the e-commerce platforms have got to. That's not to say that everything works perfectly. There are still a number of gaps and those need to be filled in. But yes, there are certain, certain ones that are being filled quickly. Um, Thank you, Nick. Um, Neha first, and then oh, so I, I, I'll uh, allow me to just ask you my question, Neha, and you can treat that second if you'd like to make your comment on Nick's comment first. Um, but but I just I just like to ask, you know, 12, 18 months from now, from the production of this uh, excellent work, the in Property Rights Enforcement Manual, um, what would you like to 
observe as being visible, tangible, noticeable, meaningful changes as impacts? Yeah, thank you, Chris. I was just hoping to answer your previous question about uh, the universities in uh, Indonesia catering to IP. Of course, I don't really have specific information about Indonesian market, but I thought I would share some very general tips in terms of accessing resources from the uh, IPOS, the, Internet, the Intellectual Property Office of Singapore. They have an IP academy. They also run courses online. In the similar fashion, BIPO has e-learning platforms as well, and the ASEAN Economic Community, they also have the Train the Trainers program. So there are a lot of resources online, and if one is keen on intellectual property rights, they should try to uh, catch up on these resources. Uh, coming on to your question in terms of how do I see this shaping up in 12 to 18 months from now, um, I would say that uh, for me, the criteria of success would be very simple from the FSEC perspective. Uh, because we're always striving to have um, inclusive and sustainable growth in all the markets that we're operating in. And to be able to have the business environment where the, 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 the companies can thrive. So we're talking about domestic ventures and international ventures as well. If you talk about uh, how I look at the success, I would say if you can see uh, lesser infringement of copyright, if you can see lesser privacy, uh, piracy happening, lesser amount of corruption in terms of how things are moving in these markets. We can protect the whistleblowers. We can change the dynamics of how it works for women who have a career in STEM, because as I said earlier, there are not enough women who are creators and inventors. So if we can start the dialogue and bring the gender equality aspect, I would consider this as a success. And at the same time, uh, to be able to have this trade tie with the UK because we are trying to absorb the best practices from the UK and bring them to the ASEAN region because UK has achieved quite a bit in this area. It will be good if we can just replicate some of those ideas, tailor make them for the ASEAN market. So I think uh, we are in the right hands with the Rouse team because uh, we are not only focusing on the enforcement I wanted to highlight, we're also working on the creative sector where there are a lot of women who are working. Uh, we're also looking at the IP financing, which is a very unique concept where we can use IP as a collateral to finance your uh, venture. So I think uh, we are also looking at the aspect of the intersection between intellectual property and fintech, because uh, going forward, if you're talking about initiatives like smart cities, digitization, we need to have innovation uh, and to protect the innovation to get the entrepreneurs, to get the talent and the FDI, as Desmond mentioned, we need to have a very robust IP system. So if we are able to have a robust IP system, we can see all these economies in ASEAN thriving. And we will be having another webinar with you talking about the success story then. Excellent. We'll certainly look forward to that. Um, Desmond, your, your regional advisor, what will be the next priority in the IP space for the Prosperity Programme? Right. Thank you, Chris. So actually, the current prosperity program has quite an ambitious ambit. We're working multilaterally. That means working with the ASEAN Working Group on IP, the ASEAN Enforcement Committee, as well as the ASEAN Secretary for multilateral um, work strengths. So in one way, supporting the, the ASEAN IP Action Plan 2016 to 2025. So I think the next step we could consider would be working together with ASEAN Secretary to see what is the the next iteration of their action plan, which I think at the moment they're looking to reviewing this action plan, which is going to be from 2025 onwards, for the next 10 years. And I think there's definitely a lot of space for our prosperity fund program to look into this 
at the multilateral end. Bilaterally, we are also working closely with each other countries to strengthen their IP regime. So I think as Nick and Nihas already mentioned, within the IP, uh, there are many, many IP types. There's the patents, there's copyright, there's designs, and then there's trademarks. Each of these regimes have their own sets of legislation and also enforcement processes in place. Uh, much earlier on, I've mentioned about the IP life cycle, which is from creation down to protection, commercialization, and then enforcement. And actually the last bit is actually on dispute resolution. So I think bilaterally, I think for the Prosperity Fund, this is also along this strand that we will want to strengthen, particularly on the commercialization part. Because if you see the first iteration of this program, it has been looking a lot into policy, looking into protection and creation. I think there's already a lot of space that in the next part is look into the commercialization and monetization of the IP assets. Because frankly, humans and all of us can generate ideas, any man or woman on the street, um, if you have a good idea, you can get it protected and you can have it monetized. I think that strongly supports the prosperity program's aim of inclusive and sustainable growth and also for every man and woman on the street. So I, and of course, to support our primary objective, which is wealth creation. So I think definitely, I think on commercialization, that's a very important piece that we can look at. Thank you, Desmond. Um, I, Nick, I would just like to make an observation um, Although I think Neha wants to a, a little, a, a little addition there to Desmond's response. Yes, please go ahead, Neha. No, I didn't have anything to say. Sorry, Chris. Oh, okay. All right then. Uh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Um, Nick, in, in just a moment, I, I'll invite you to just do a, a, a little wrap, really. Um, but just just before a personal observation, personal and on behalf of uh, Britcham, really. Um, I'm, I mean, as we all know at the moment, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on businesses in China to diversify themselves uh, from dependence on one particular market. Um, it's becoming a, a, a strategic thrust of many companies in, in so far as managing risks. Um, Indonesia, of course, in the region is, is hoping to be one of the beneficiaries. Um, it was hoping to be a couple of years ago when there was a similar shift. Um, and to a large degree uh, lost out to Vietnam to, to name one particular uh, country. And I'm, I'm just, but, but what I never heard when Indonesia was losing out, I didn't hear uh, IP being the reason. Um, it was more about labor policy. It was more about cost of land. It was, it was more about tax incentives and tax deferrals and sweetheart deals. Um, and um, I, I'm, I'm just wondering as a, as a, as a chamber and with you as um, uh, a, a practice that, um, uh, that, that, excuse the expression, plies your trade in this field and advises and counsels. Um, perhaps we need to make sure that Indonesia does understand that um, the, the robustness of their approach to IP enforcement and so on could be a determining factor as to how much of that displaced or repositioned business they might get from China. Um, if you'd just like to include a, a quick retort to that within a roundup, Nick, that would be great. Great. Thanks, Chris. Um, yes, that is an interesting point. There's no doubt that intellectual property features as one of the factors when businesses decide where to invest. Um, it has been the case, at least in you know, a decade or so ago, that many of the Southeast Asian countries were broadly at a, in a similar position. However, the change uh, that has taken place in 
the way governments negotiate, the trend towards more bilateralism away from multilateralism has led to a number of countries doing their own deals, basically. So um, Vietnam, for example, has signed up to the CPTPP, which was previously called the TPP, which is a treaty which uh, um, initiated by the US, but of course now other countries have adopted it without the US and pushed on with it. Um, it contains what is called TRIPS plus provisions, which means to say that the standards that they adopt are a next level above TRIPS. So Vietnam has, by doing that, set out its intention to essentially upgrade its IP system. So that's the sort of thing that a country can do to signal to investors that it wants to, to move up the ladder, as it were. So um, yeah, Indonesia, I think, does need to look at uh, some of these areas. There have been some recent treaty and, um, treaties that have been signed up to, but one of the big jobs now is looking at this sort of map, uh, bilateral uh, opportunity and seeing whether, I mean, there is a discussion of a Indonesia-European free trade agreement, but Vietnam, Vietnam has already got to the uh, start line on that ahead of Indonesia. So yes, it's definitely something that the government here um, should look at. It's something that the international community can talk about more, and that the chambers and other business groups can explain that additional protections will signify a country's seriousness about protecting its, its innovation and knowledge economy systems. In terms of a wrap-up, I was really going to talk a little bit about something we've touched upon, which is uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, several trends have been accelerated. First, the trade in uh, um, both legal and illegal goods flowing into Southeast Asia. Um, sometime uh, in the early part of this year, after the pandemic uh, started, Southeast Asia overtook Europe as China's largest trade partner. That's for legitimate goods. However, that also includes counterfeit goods. We've got data from our offices in China on cases where goods were leaving China and intercepted, heading for Southeast Asia, which show a significant rise in the interceptions of goods that were destined for this region. So it's both good and bad. The trend is being increased by this uh, changing uh, trade pattern. Secondly, certain business sectors are seeing a huge rise in both fake, but also fraudulent uh, versions of products and services. The healthcare sector, pharmaceutical products, household cleaning, detergent, and all of those kind of products are also suffering from an increase in, in illegal products. And of course, PPE, personal protective equipment sectors as well. We've been helping companies in all three of those um, whilst we've been essentially working from home in a lockdown who've seen a massive rise in these problems throughout the world, in fact. So that's another trend that's taking place now. And thirdly, because of the lockdowns that have taken place, the quarantine systems throughout the world, online commerce has been given a shot in the arm, a big boost. So online shopping platforms who are already perhaps dealing with a small number of, uh, of infringement problems now have a much bigger volume of problems to deal with. So now when companies come to us, the first question they ask is not really, how do I deal with the police or how do I deal with the courts? The first question is now, how do I deal with the removal of uh, products on these um, online marketplaces? 
So that's the trends that we're observing, you know, very recent ones that have come up in the last few months. And that will only increase, I think, as we go into the future. It gives us a, so a sort of in insight into the type of uh, issues that companies will face going forwards in the intellectual property space. Thanks very much. Thank you, uh, Nick. Really appreciated for that, that roundup. And really, that just leaves me to uh, thank our panelists and principals behind this program. Um, and Neha, uh, Desmond, uh, Nick, we do apologize for having lost Pankaj along the way. Um, clearly issues with um, internet and bandwidth there. Um, but still, we did have the benefit of uh, some excellent slides. And uh, I'd just like to remind everybody that's tuned in that uh, you have homework to do. Uh, you have got, uh, you've got until Monday morning to submit it and uh, you will get what you need from the Britcham website. You can download a copy, an electronic copy of the Intellectual Property Rights Enforcement Manual for Indonesia. Um, with that, I'd just like to thank everybody for attending. Um, and uh, we hope that you, uh, your, your issues, your questions have been answered in relation to intellectual property in Indonesia. Um, and any of our panelists would be happy to engage uh, with you if there are questions that remain unanswered as well. Do get in touch with us. Uh, a very good morning, or a very good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone.